I wonder if you would agree, mm. uh, Jeremy, that we've got this feeling that if someone disagrees with me, it's my, he's my enemy. Yeah. Like yeah. what happened? Yeah. Well, why do we do that? Mm. And so uh, my experience with uh, Muslim friends is to say, listen, let's, let's speak, let's say what we really think mm-hmm. and let's drink tea together and let's <laughs> eat together. Yeah. And let's, let's go on walks uh, by the seaside together. And, uh, and we're friends. Hey, and welcome back to the All Things All People podcast. So glad that you've joined in today to be a part of raising up generations of Christian thinkers to understand and reach the world around them with the transformative message of the gospel. This podcast is just one way that All Things All People is part of that. We're getting back right now as uh, hopefully things are getting better in and around your life with the COVID-19 pandemic. We are getting slowly back to uh, seeing events open back up, uh, both virtual and uh, in person. And so um, I know I'm in the process of scheduling speaking engagements and Lord willing, by the end of 2021, even hosting some All Things All People events in the Western North Carolina area. But for information about that, go follow All Things All People at allthings.allpeople on Instagram. Also there, you're going to get a ton of uh, information and teaching from me and the guys and all around. Just have a good time. Um, If you have listened to the show in the past and you've enjoyed it, I'm so glad. Make sure that you go review the show, especially on Apple Podcasts, where it's just going to help more and more people hear about All Things All People podcast and get to know the ministry and all of the tremendous guests that we have on the show. And boy, over the next few weeks, we have a ton of really great ones. Um, we're starting off 2021 phenomenally well, and this week is no different. I came across Dr. Gordon Nickel. Uh, doing some research for the show. Uh, I, I do a ton of work in world religions, comparative religion. Um, I have my master's in intercultural studies and uh, do, do, that's just something I do um, really on the side, even on the side away from all things, all people is uh, right and work in that field. And so when I saw that Gordon Nickel had written the Quran with Christian commentary. Um, I mean, I knew I was going to get the book, even if I didn't get a chance to have him on the show. And we uh, dialogue quite a bit through email. And he, I mean, he genuinely just might be one of the nicest people I've ever talked to. He was so sweet, so generous. Um, and I mean, a brilliant scholar of Islam and Quranic studies. And if you've ever been curious of of how to better understand, how to better engage with Muslims, um, even talk about Islam. You not only need to listen to this full episode and listen to Dr. Nickel uh, just discuss Islam and the Quran and how Christians should view Muslims, but also you need to go get this book. And he has another book um, on the gentle answer to the accusation of his, of uh, biblical corruption and so you need to you need to get both of them but especially the quran with christian commentary which really makes up the majority of what we talk about 
today. And so, um, yeah, like I said, make sure you're following both uh, All Things All People and Gordon on, on social media. All the links are in the bio. But the most important thing for you and I to do today is to buckle up and listen to our Christian thinker for today, which is the phenomenally nice but brilliant Dr. Gordon Nickel. My next guest is author of Zondervan's The Quran with Christian Commentary, an insightful translation of the Quran with notes regarding the background, themes, history, and significance of Islam's primary holy book. He is the author of many other publications on Islam that if you're interested in any study of religions, you should check out. He is the former director of the South Asia Institute of Advanced Christian Studies, a very special school in South Asia that equips Christians to advance the Christian work in a very difficult part of the world that is close to both Dr. Nichols and my heart. He has also taught at various institutions of higher learning in Canada, the USA, Pakistan, and Malaysia. It is my very special honor to have on the podcast today, Dr. Gordon Nickel. Dr. Nickel, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thanks for having me on, and uh, I look forward to our conversation, Jeremy. Yeah. yeah. Well, the way that you know you and I came across each other, I was um, looking at this this most recent publication, which we'll certainly uh, spend some time talking about, and I just thought. You know, I'm very familiar with the new works in world religions and comparative religion, and I've never really seen anything like this. And I think that that there's probably a reason for that, which I'd love to talk to you about as well. But um, but I think this is a really special book, really special uh, publication. Um, and uh, but it comes really if anybody knows anything about you, it comes really from a life of working and ministering in and even living in parts of the world that have a high percentage of not just Muslims, but Hindus and, and so many other uh, groups. So, so briefly, could you just describe how you got to the point where you began working in academia, teaching on Islam and, and other religions? Sure. Yeah. Well, going back to the, the um, mid eighties, um, I had a very good seminary experience in uh, biblical studies and then uh, our church, uh, the, uh, the mission of our church said, we'd like you to go to Pakistan to, mm. to work there uh, among a, one of the unreached people groups there. And so they said, well, you got to know something about Islam first. Mm -hmm. So they sent my wife and me and our, our three kids to London to study at the School of Oriental and African Studies. And yeah. that was a great chance to um, learn the religion start start to learn the religion mm -hmm. and to uh, actually start the urdu language which mm -hmm. is uh, spoken in pakistan and so um we lived in muslim areas of the city of karachi for five six years uh our all our neighbors were muslims mm -hmm. and our kids played with the muslim kids um when you finish that assignment um then I thought, well, I know Urdu now, and mm -hmm. Urdu has a modified Arabic script. So I thought, well, why not use that and try to get to learn Arabic well enough to be able to read the Quran and the commentaries and the, the early primary sources of Islam. So I started a PhD 
And uh, during that PhD, my, when I was finished my coursework, uh, my wife and I went back to India mm-hmm. and uh, to the city of Hyderabad. Uh, Jeremy, you know what, that city. Yeah. And um, yeah, lots of Muslims there, lots of Hindus. Mm-hmm. And so we made friends with, uh, with the Muslims there and, and taught a group of young evangelists the ways to share the gospel with Muslim friends. Mm-hmm. It was a great, great assignment. Meanwhile, in, in order to stay there, Jeremy, I had to get a student visa or a research visa. And I had to start a second PhD at the, <laughs> at the university just to be yeah. able to stay there. And it was a great learning experience uh, for both PhDs as well yeah. while I was there. Then in, in, more, in more recent years, uh, as you said, going back to India in 2014, and the call there was to, again, um, train young scholars in Islam f- to help the church in its witness uh, among mm-hmm. the many Muslims of India. Yeah. So what's it, there's so many things interesting to me about that, but what... It, I find most endearing is I've spent some time trying uh, struggling to learn Hindi, which Urdu and Hindi share quite a bit of commonality in right. how they're spoken, not the script so much. Um, but yet you went from Pakistan speaking Urdu to Hyderabad where Hindi does you very little good. And so then you probably had to learn Telugu, I would imagine. Well, um, yeah, we, I learned Telugu as a boy because my parents right, were yeah. missionaries in that area as well. But uh, Hindi is close enough to Urdu that you can get by. So mm-hmm. many would, uh, they might comment on, see, Urdu has a lot of Arabic and Persian vocabulary, mm-hmm. whereas Hindi goes to Sanskrit. But the every, ev- everyday words uh, like shopping and looking mm-hmm. and seeing and doing, they're, they're all the same and people mm-hmm. understand. So uh, people never... Never had a problem in Hyderabad to know what I was saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my my Hindi gets me very, uh, very short distances in Hyderabad. Um, and uh, but I, I do love that. I do love Hyderabad very much. And as we were saying in pre-show, I think it's a very special place, especially for it somebody uh, like yourself or myself, who's who's interested in religions, because you can mm-hmm. find just about anything there. Um, very cosmopolitan for 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 India. But and, and as you said, you spent. Um, a, a significant portion of your early childhood in, in India. Um, and so you, is it difficult for you then? And I've, I've, I've in researching your work and whatnot, you do so much now in writing for uh, publishers like Zondervan. And I I've seen you speak at churches and things like that. Is it difficult for you? Because I think starting in 2001, of course, with, with nine 11, um, the majority of Americans were very not familiar with Islam and, you obviously have a very ministerial heart for Muslims and desire to see them come to Christ. And is it difficult for you uh, living in a post 9-11 United States where sometimes Muslims are seen very much as the enemy? Um, what, what was that? What was it, What I guess what it's 20 years ago now, goodness gracious. But what have the last 20 years been like for you in discussing with American Christians why we should have a heart for Muslims? Yeah, uh, it's it's true that there are trends in the way that uh, Americans see Muslims. Uh, it it can go both ways, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, certainly. You're also uh, it's true that it's been these last twenty years, really, that people have been talking and saying, oh, "What is this Islam?" And you know, mm-hmm. questions like, "Is it violent?" and so on. Mm-hmm. And so, um, in the early years after nine eleven, there was. Uh, 
there was a teachable moment, but unfortunately the teachable moment passed. Mm -hmm. And um, many of the uh, custodians of Islamic studies in the United States and the universities said, hey, this is our subject mm -hmm. and we're gonna teach it our way. And we don't like what, uh, what's coming up in the media. Yeah. And so they started a line on, on Islam and held it um, and actually shut down the conversation. So uh, there's still a conversation to be had about Islam mm -hmm. that is free of, uh, free of politics, mm -hmm. free of sort of power structures, uh, because uh, Islam, uh, well, I'd say Muslims yeah. are, are dear people who really need, mm -hmm. uh, really need the gospel. Yeah. And that, you know, you, you draw an interesting line there where you, where you caught yourself saying Muslims are of course should be dear to Christians, but then we have to stop short of making Islam dear to Christians. <laughs> you know, is, is that even for people like yourself and myself who, who'd enjoy studying religions, I find myself having a very uh, soft heart towards Muslims and Hindus and the like but oftentimes having to draw a hard stance of how I feel about their particular beliefs. And, and perhaps the best place to find that really is in a work like the one that, that you're in the process of, of having put out there with Zondervan, which is this Quran with Christian commentary. And, and the reason why I, I sort of chuckled at the beginning is that I think I've never seen anything like it. it I've never seen a Christian engage with, with really any primary source, such as the Quran, in, in such an intimate way as you have um, going so far as having the translation of the Quran there by AJ Drudge and then, and then your notes there. How did that come about? Was that Zondervan's idea or was that something that you submitted to them to say, hey, this is really necessary for Christians and non-Christians alike? Actually, Zondervan came up with this and really? I, was, I, was, I was very glad for the chance because, you know, I told you it's been since uh, the 80s that I've been studying Islam and living mm -hmm. with Muslims. And then you teach courses in seminaries and universities uh, that are about the Quran. Mm -hmm. And so you gather a good uh, set of notes uh, in, in all these years. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, didn't, I had no plan to write a book like this. But when they asked me, I thought, well, this is great. I've got the skeleton of, of uh, the comments in the sort of things I've taught in my courses. And I can fill those out and then look for other parts that, that need to be answered. Mm -hmm. So it really is a great, great opportunity, just a golden opportunity for me as a scholar of Islam mm -hmm. and a Christian to uh, be able to write this commentary. Really, it was a great break. Oh, yeah. Well, I would imagine, I would imagine so. And like I said, I'm, just, I, the, I'm standing here in front of my religion's bookshelf and looking and just kind of seeing usually Christians, when they write things like this, they talk about Islam. Um, and here you are right in the midst of the Quran. And for the, for the listener who, who maybe they're just not that familiar with Islam, can you describe as best as you can, especially having lived in Islamic areas and studied it academically, because the two are very different, in my opinion, uh, the lived aspect of any religion is going to look completely different than what you and I might teach in a classroom. But what, what place does the Quran hold in the life of the, of the average Muslim? Because I think the conversation of why this is such a seminal work really needs to start there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To, to ask what, what it means in the, in the life of an average Muslim. And you know, you, you're, you're talking here too about uh, worldview, aren't you? And, mm -hmm. and the way that when you want to get to know someone, 
when you want to respect and love them, you care about uh, what they think. Mm-hmm. And, and you, you tune what you say to the things that they know and, and, and like. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this is the starting, this was m- my starting point just out of biblical studies that we start with, with love, uh, we start with um, respect, and uh, we, we want to get to know people and, and love them. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the, the Bible gives us this great approach toward people. Um, the ordinary Muslims, to answer your question, um, don't actually read the Quran in their own language. Right. So, of course, many Muslims read Arabic, but the Arabic of the Quran, going back 1400 years, is a a kind of classical Arabic that uh, not everyone knows well. Mm -hmm. But most of the world's Muslims in Indonesia and South Asia and other places uh, don't speak Arabic. They don't know Arabic. Now, the young people will, especially the boys, they'll go to the uh, mosque after school and they'll learn to memorize the Quran. But it's like, uh, Jeremy, it's like if we uh, asked our kids to memorize the, the New Testament in Greek yeah. without, without knowing Greek. Mm-hmm. Right. But right. There, there's a feeling that uh, the merit right, comes from reading it in Arabic. It doesn't mm-hmm. help to read it in Hindi. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's been tried yeah. and it, it failed. Yeah. Uh, you have to read it in Arabic for the merit. And um, many would say, we won't read that Hindi translation if there is one, mm-hmm. uh, because the Quran is, you can't translate the Quran. Mm-hmm. It's, it's in a kind of a, uh, a divine Arabic mm-hmm. that, that can't be translated. It's, mm-hmm. it's inimitable. You know, mm-hmm. it's, uh, so many don't read it. So how did they learn it? They'll learn it uh, from the, uh, the leaders at the mosque, the imams, the mulvis that, that are in Muslim societies who will then preach on it like on, on Friday noon or uh, g- give teaching or, or write on it. And so it's, it's sort of um, a little bit like the Middle Ages for Christians where the priest had this uh, position of knowing Latin uh, while the people in the country actually were speaking something else and didn't know mm. Latin. So the priest, you relied on him to tell what was in, you know, yeah. in the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. And for a Protestant Christian, it, it, you know, you mentioned worldview. And when we begin asking questions about another group of people from a different part of the, of, of the world, we be, have to begin understanding, well, how do they just even see the world? And I think for most Western Protestant Christians, they do not understand it's a, it's an interesting tension that Muslims hold the Quran in extremely high regard. So high, so high, like you said, that they won't, they refuse to translate it. They believe even that, that, uh, you know, this Quran is really just a reflection of a heavenly word, uh, that, that is, that is in, in heaven with Allah. And, and, and so, but yet, it's, they hold it in such high regard, but they are not intimately familiar with it. Um, and, and of course, Protestantism, Protestantism started essentially from breaking a system much like that, like you said, yeah. it, coming out of the Catholic Middle Ages where no one could read the, the Bible in their own language. And so I think even to begin there by just understanding that a Muslim holds the Quran in, in extremely high regard, but in, in is not 
typically we, 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 we of course have to use generalized sayings here, but is not typically uh, extremely familiar with it. I've, I've been to Friday services at mosques where uh, if somebody's not been to a, a, a prayer service at a Muslim uh, mosque, it, it's, it's inundated. It's filled with the Quran, but it's usually dictated to them in Arabic by Imam, as you said. And so, so even knowing that, um, and then you, you being asked by Zonervan to, to write this book, what were some of your feelings towards that work that said, okay, if a Muslim maybe picks up this book, um, I, I, I desire for them to have an experience uh, that might be somewhat liberating. Did you, were, was there any part of you writing this work with a Muslim in mind and not just, you know, a Christian like, like myself? Yes. Yes, there was the approach. Um, you know, the approach to the material is, uh, is an open approach. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, Christians want to understand what's in the Quran. And so I am often writing for them, but I'm writing in uh, knowing the, the ways that Muslims have interpreted these verses, just like in interpretation of the Bible mm-hmm. uh, for the Quran, you have um, a long tradition of commentaries going back 1200 years and uh, they don't all agree on yeah. what the Quran means. And so um, getting to know uh, the ways Muslims have translated these verses often in the commentary, then I would say, this is the way Muslims have seen this. Or I'd, mm-hmm. I'd say uh, Muslims tie this in with the story of Muhammad that we, they believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is sort of the narrative framework that they use behind these words to, to know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's, that's something that anyone can say. Yeah. Uh, Muslims, Muslims or Christians can say that. We can study that. We can know that. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's, it's objective in that sense. Uh, yeah. How... How have Muslims understood this in the past? Mm-hmm. Right. And I suppose to, for the, for the listener, just a brief history, even of what we're talking about with the Quran, because of course, you know, m- many Christians are not that familiar with it. Of course, this is uh, a word that was supposedly dictated to the prophet Muhammad over the course of around 20 years. Um, and supposedly coming from straight from the mouth of Allah through the angel Gabriel and then collected after Muhammad's death and assembled into what is now known as, as the Quran. Um, I had uh, Dr. Andy Bannister on the show a few months ago, who is an Islamic scholar as, as well. And he, one thing I appreciate about him and I appreciate it about you as well. And I think ultimately to be an effective scholar in Islam uh, or in engaging Islam, you have to have a gentle spirit because I asked Andy, I said, I think we were talking about abrogation, which is the, the idea, of course, that something that comes later in the Quran can somehow supersede a, an earlier teaching. And I asked him, hey, what do you, you know, let's talk about this. And, and, and it seemed like every time I asked him this, he said, well, you know, Christians do that, too. Uh, he said, you know, Christians need to be very careful to not place an expectation on any religion, but yet alone Islam, that they themselves uh, can sometimes be guilty of as, as well. And so do you think for the listener, whether it's they have a Muslim friend or maybe they desire to become more involved in missions to, to the Islamic world, um, this gentle spirit that I sense in you and that I sense in Andy that I think makes you guys very effective, do you think that's a prerequisite in engaging with Muslims in today's world? 
Yeah, good question. And not everyone would, would share that view. Right. Uh, but you're right. Um, you know, when I wrote an earlier book uh, in answer to uh, Muslim accusations against the Bible mm-hmm. uh, called The Gentle Answer, I actually used that title because, as you know, uh, Proverbs 15, 1, um, a, a gentle answer turns away wrath. You know, mm-hmm. in, in this, uh, we call it, may call it dialogue, Often it's a debate. It's it's um, you know it's it's a little bit combative mm-hmm. uh, when you hear these the real debates in Muslim countries, and um, you know in First Peter three it says First Peter three fifteen you know um, give an answer, mm-hmm. but make sure it's with respect and gentleness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was looking at that from the Bible itself. Um, yeah, I mean the the first the. The bottom line really is uh, respect and friendship. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if we, uh, part of our love and respect for Muslims is get, getting to know their worldview. Mm-hmm. And if the, if the Quran is important, then we want to know what's in there and what have mm-hmm. been the ways of interpretation. But um, once we know that, and we're working from a Christian uh, commitment, mm-hmm. we believe in Jesus, we believe the Bible is God's word, then uh, we have this chance to evaluate, according to a standard, uh, what, we've, what we've learned from mm-hmm. Islam or, or heard from Muslims. So this is not disrespectful, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what we need is, is a kind of answer that takes seriously what Muslims believe. Mm-hmm. As you said earlier, not, not uh, misrepresenting them, right? Yeah. As Andy said, um, but hearing what they're saying and responding authentically. Mm-hmm. If we say, sounds good to me, um, yeah. and we don't mean it, that's not, that's not a conversation mm-hmm. and that's not peace. Yeah. Uh, peace is when we really speak from our hearts, uh, but we're committed to living together in society in peace. Mm-hmm. We're in friendship. We're, uh, it doesn't mean that we're enemies because we disagree. This is yeah. this is a problem now. I, I wonder if you would agree, mm. uh, Jeremy, that we've got this feeling that if someone disagrees with me, it's my he's my enemy. Yeah. Like yeah. what happened? Yeah. Well, why do we do that? Mm. And so uh, my experience with uh, Muslim friends is to say, listen, let's let's speak, let's say what we really think. Mm-hmm. And let's drink tea together and let's eat together. <laughs> yeah. And let's, let's go on walks uh, by the seaside together. And, uh, and we're friends. Yeah. I think being a religious scholar in a postmodern world is kind of like walking in a, in a minefield. Uh, I mean, that's, I mean, I'm new to it. I've only been in religious academia really for the last few years, but that's how I felt in doing this show and engaging with a lot of different opinions. Um, has made me feel like, you know, I, I, I resonate very much with you and with Andy and, and a lot of other people who, to me, when I meet scholar, I mean, I talk to a lot of scholars and I talk to a lot of apologists and typically the apologists are the ones that are more, of course, looking to debate and the scholars, the ones who have spent maybe a career as you have intimately familiar with maybe an Islamic primary source like the Quran or the Hadith, 
they're typically the ones that have an easier time maintaining friendships. And I think there's something to be said there, but both are saying the same thing. Ultimately, they're saying, no, I think Muslims are wrong. <laughs> um, but I, I, I think we do need to be able to maintain the friendships and do need to be able to say you're wrong. But as you said, let's, let's drink tea. And, and I think tea and coffee settles a, a world of disputes. And so, um, <laughs> that's right. But, um, yeah. yeah. And so, so, so I think though, um, living the life that you have is, is a great demonstration of that, but I'm sure though, and I don't know if you've received any feedback from Muslims regarding, um, regarding the, the book. Um, but I had somebody, I posted a picture of it on my Instagram and, and, and it got a lot of positive response. People were very excited to get their hands on that. Cause they like, like me, they hadn't seen much like that. Thank and you. one, one of my followers said, uh, does he have a fatwa on his head? Uh, you know, somebody saying in, in for listeners, that's, um, a bounty, I guess we could say, you know, and, uh, or, you know, so to speak. And I'm sure that there are Muslims who, even though you are about as congenial as you can get, and you've spent a lifetime studying seriously and, and respectfully the Muslim world that don't care as much about that because they feel as if this work is in some way defiling the Quran. Have you gotten any feedback in that respect yet? I have got some good feedback from, from, uh, Muslims in England. Uh, and there they say, we're glad, you know, we're glad that you're saying it straight. Yeah. And they say, <laughs> yeah. sometimes what you're saying is a little hard to take. Mm. Uh, but uh, Jeremy, most Muslims in the world, if you think of outside of North American Europe, mm -hmm. are are not postmodern. Yeah, that is, it, their epistemology is some things are right, some things are wrong, yeah. some things are true, some things are false, and false and wrong have become difficult words in our uh, conversation yeah. these days. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I say you're wrong, Jeremy, have, have I offended you? Right. Like. Am I showing my hate or are we talking together about a disagreement? So the, the epistemology mm -hmm. is similar between people who um, have, I would say, a biblical concept of knowledge mm -hmm. and knowing that the Bible's free to say we know, right? Uh, you know, uh, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. We, we mm -hmm. can know it, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, we shouldn't, uh, 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 what, I mean, what I mean to say is, this is something we have in common with mm -hmm. Muslims who are very committed to their faith. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the five pillars of Islam, and everyone, just about everyone knows the five pillars, is a confession of faith. Mm -hmm. And so when you or I bear witness to Christ with Muslims, they may not agree with us. They yeah. may think what we're saying is wrong, but they probably respect what we're doing because they themselves do it. And they're mm -hmm. meeting a lot of people, a lot of non-Muslims, especially in the United States, who say, oh, your, your truth is okay, and that his truth is okay, and her yeah. truth is okay. And what, what's, you know, that's the, that's the thing that Muslims may not understand. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, They're saying, this is the truth about uh, the messenger of Islam and the Quran and Islam. And you're telling me that, What? That's true. And then it's opposite is also true. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think, I think even some immigrants are coming into the United States and they're meeting Christians who are, who are so, uh, um, you know, so postmodern mm -hmm. that they don't, 
recognize what's yeah. going on. Yeah. And uh, so what do you think? Yeah. Well, I think it's so, I, I have people ask me all the time and about religions and, you know, and, and one of the more interesting and fun questions I've ever gotten was somebody saying, other than Christianity, what religion makes the most sense? Or, or something to that effect. And I said, well, you know, when, and I don't mean to offend anybody, but I suppose I, that's exactly what we're talking about is I'm going to offend somebody is that, you know, when I think of Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and some of the other major American movements that we've seen in the last hundred years, I think most of those make almost no sense religiously. I think most of them are very convoluted. And I tell people, I say, I don't think Americans will like hearing this um, or, or white Anglo-Americans, but Islam and, you know, of course, Judaism are the most similar to Christianity. And I think because, because as we said, in, in a post 9-11 world, many people, especially people of my age and younger, are bred to think of Islam very much automatically from an enemy standpoint is they, they think Islam is completely antithetical to Christianity. And of course, at its heart, I do believe it is. But like you're saying, the, the epistemology or the way that they derive truth is very similar to Christianity, so much more than a postmodern Western world, which says there is no truth. And so in that way, you know, you'd have to say that uh, in a sense, we look at truth much more similarly uh, to to them than we do uh, a Western agnostic atheist or something to that effect. And so so I suppose it's that's a, that's a great mark of honor that, as you've said, many of your Muslim friends have said, hey, I just appreciate that you're saying it straight. You're not you know, beating around the bush and pretending as if we're all right. I think uh, the most offensive thing, it, you know, just a few weeks ago, it was very big news. And the, the congressman here in the United States who prayed a prayer and ended it with amen and a woman. And I, 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 yeah, I laugh about it too, but I told some of my friends, I said, you know, the most offensive thing isn't the amen and the a woman. It's, it was the prayer that treated all religions as if they were all the same and all true. Yeah, and I, and I think point. that's, I think that's the most offensive thing in all honesty is that, uh, and I think that's what makes our, our dialogue and books like yours so effective in the Muslim world is that, um, that they appreciate that we disagree with them. And, and, and to the listener who's maybe not traveled outside much of the West is that in the East, talking about religion is not a uh, taboo like it is, is here. I don't know if that's been your experience, but most of my South Asian friends and Middle Eastern friends, they, they don't mind talking about their religion, whereas here it's something we avoid like the plague. Yeah, you're right. Uh, many, many Muslims really enjoy talking about religion. It's not mm -hmm. sort of off the table as it is for many in the uh, United States and Canada. Mm -hmm. And so uh, they don't mind if you bring that up. They'll, yeah. they'll, they'll participate. Mm -hmm. We just need to remember, uh, Jeremy, Jeremy, that um, Islam arose in the 7th century, so 600 years mm -hmm. down the road from uh, the origins of Christianity. And the gospel and the New Testament and the Old Testament had mm -hmm. been around in that region in the Middle East for now 600 years. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Islam was, was a conscious, seems to be a conscious response mm -hmm. to some of the most important things that Jews and Christians were saying. And so we have sort of encoded in the Quran a response to those uh, you know, big guys on the block, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, and when you, when there's a new religion on the block, as happened in the seventh century, you have to measure yourself by the other religions. Mm -hmm. 
So in the Quran itself, there's a, there, there's a feeling that there's a statement that this new recitation uh, confirms the earlier scriptures. Yeah. And at the same time, a suspicion mm-hmm. about the custodians of the Torah and gospel. Uh, and so uh, it's responding. And one recent scholar, Mark Jury, he said, in his opinion, uh, it was sort of like what happened, what happened sometimes in the ruins of an empire, where you come and and uh, you know the earlier temples and churches are are sort of knocked down, and then you use the pillars mm-hmm. to make a new building, a new mosque. So you're using pieces of those religions, and you're you're um, you're you're giving birth to a, a brand new religion with different uh, purposes practices and beliefs. And so um, this is the, if that's true, this is the situation that we're in, in that dialogue. And there's, there's lots coming our way. And in fact, it's first coming our way because Islam conquered the area in the seventh century. And then there were these conversations with the conquered peoples, whether Jews or Christians. And that's where this uh, language of the the Bible's corrupt or mm-hmm. falsified came from uh, not mm-hmm. from not from uh, Christians or Jews not from the right. conquered peoples mm-hmm. but from the conquerors actually. yeah yeah and if if anybody reads the Quran it doesn't take long for them to find themselves trying to figure out who um, Allah supposedly is talking about when he says people of the law people of the book. Um, people of the Injil or gospel and Torah and in, in Muhammad goes on even in writing, um, you know, dictating the, the Quran to reference very particular knowledge that had to have come from the Bible. Um, you know, many of the patriarchs from the old Testament um, are included. Many, many Christians don't realize that Outside of Muhammad, maybe the second most important human in Islam is is Jesus, um, or Isa, as he's called in the Quran. So, in your opinion, just studying Islam as much as you have, how do you think Muhammad was so? As, I mean, as you said, the message had obviously made its way to the Arabian Peninsula, but it seemed as if either him or the people who assembled the Quran had a fairly intimate knowledge with uh, the Old and New Testament. How do you think? Um, that was uh, achieved? Well, uh, the, the familiarity wasn't so much with the books of mm-hmm. the Old, Old and New Testament. There doesn't seem to actually have been very much familiarity behind the Quran. But as you say, the stories of the, uh, of the characters, especially in the Torah, mm-hmm. but also David and Solomon. Mm-hmm. So Moses is huge. Yeah. Abraham is big. Uh, you've got uh, Lot, you've got Joseph. You've got um, Noah, Noah. Mm-hmm. right? And uh, as you say, you've got Isa. Mm-hmm. Um, so where is that from? It, it's, it's as if it was overheard because mm-hmm. the retellings in the Quran uh, leave out some things that we might look for knowing the yeah. biblical story and then add some things that we've never seen. Mm-hmm. And those uh, often are, are similar to uh, apocryphal, Christian apocryphal, books preceding Islam and rabbinic uh, um, Haggadah and uh, rabbinic, rabbinic um, 
books like the Talmud mm-hmm. and, and the Mishnah and, and Midrash. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's as if it was overheard and then brought into the Quran, not, not that it was seen on the page. So mm-hmm. there, yeah. there's very little indication in the Quran of anyone having seen mm-hmm. uh, the gospel or Torah or, or any books of the yeah. Bible. Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting because in the, in, um, in your book, the Quran with Christian commentary, you you know, you do make that argument that it seems as if um, Jewish apocryphal literature, second temple literature would have influenced uh, Islamic thinking or the thinking on the Arabian peninsula. Do you think now, obviously though, there was some Christian presence in the area because Jesus is so featured in in the Quran, do you think there was a strong Christian presence in uh, the Arabian Peninsula? Maybe a missionary movement of some kind that would have brought about at least a story based knowledge of Jesus in the life of Muhammad. Well, uh, one of the things uh, I'll just state briefly: you can we can talk about it more if you like. But um, Muslims have a story about how the Quran came together. You were mm-hmm. referring to it earlier. Um, but actually there's no historical evidence for any part of it. Right. So there's no independent witness to uh, those events. Mm-hmm. So it's very strong in the minds of Muslims. Uh, the, the best known narratives of that early period are from about 200 years later. Mm-hmm. So consider the, the uh, New Testament writings, right? Mm-hmm. So we say the gospel accounts maybe came from, from 20 to... Yeah. 70 90, yeah 70 or 90 yeah yeah depending on your yeah, dating of john you, yeah right yeah what i mean is after after yeah. the death, death yeah. and resurrection of jesus yeah and uh, so this is a gap of 200 years so mm-hmm. scholars have been looking at this and saying to what extent is that story historical mm-hmm. and to what extent is it salvation history so there's sort of two two things going on here how would we respond to the story as muslims tell it and then what does uh, academic scholarship say mm-hmm. about that story? Uh, and so the whole area of uh, Islamic studies and Quranic studies is, vi- is in a kind of turmoil now. Mm-hmm. Uh, n- scholars not all agreeing yeah. on some of the mo- most basic things. But mm-hmm. um, just to respond to what you were saying, um, uh, many of the stories, because they leave out details, um, we call this elliptical or referential. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does that mean? And many scholars have said, well, it must mean that the, the listeners were actually familiar with this, the basic story. Mm-hmm. And now it's being used uh, and appealing to the familiarity among the audience. So that's different from um, the Muslim account, which says these were sort of pagan people ignorant of that whole heritage who uh, who were listening mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and so um, that's that's uh, that's one of those mysteries in scholarship that that many are pursuing now yeah and I, I it's here here in a minute I want to ask you a specific question about answering uh, the accusations from historic Islam that that ours and the Jewish texts were corrupted. But before we get to that, which, you know, that's sort of your, one of your bread and butters. But um, it, one thing is 
and I think about what I mentioned earlier about Andy Bannister and, and him saying, you know, hey, Christians do this too. So let's not be too hard on them. Because when, when I began studying Islam, and I specifically the instance I remember when I learned about um, Muhammad's night journey into a listener that would be Muhammad was taken uh, in the middle of the night to Jerusalem um, and then even to to heaven where he led the patriarchs and Jesus in, in prayer. And, you know, I was fascinated to find out that thousands of years of conflict or 1400 years of conflict and war came from essentially an apocryphal story that's not really in the Quran. It's it's one line in the Quran uh, that right. say this is the night that he was taken to, yeah. to, to the great mosque, you know. And and then later, as you said, it, it was in the Hadith and then uh, even in um, uh, the life of Muhammad. Um, yeah, the Sira. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah, yeah. Um, and so this is this is an integral belief in the life of Muslims. And like I said, for the last 1400 has caused the most unstable conflict in the history of humanity. And it's from one line in the Quran that's not very well interpreted by most people. So do you think most Muslims, keeping in mind, like I said, that Christians oftentimes accept these apocryphal beliefs without really knowing where they come from. But do you think most Muslims realize that that belief is founded really on a third primary, a third source, like you said, uh, Ibn al-Saraz, the life of Muhammad, and not even really the Hadith or the Quran. Do you think most Muslims have a grasp on that? Um, well, you're, you're, you're uh, pointing to the fact that there's more than one source of authority, right? Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. And, uh, and the, what's called the Sunnah or the behavior of the messenger of Islam. I'll say messenger of Islam for Muhammad, if you don't mind, because yeah, yeah. Uh, many, many Muslims feel if you say mm -hmm. his name, you should also say something after it, right. which I can't say, which yeah. is, may the prayers of Allah be upon him. Mm -hmm. So I'll just say the messenger of Islam. Yeah, in, uh, in that account, um, you have this story of mm -hmm. uh, the heavenly journey, journey uh, in in the Sirah, in the Hadith, the Hadith are, are huge because um, Muslims believe these are things that Muhammad said mm -hmm. and uh, they've been remembered and collected. And now this was the, the middle of the third century of Islam. So 250 years down the, the road were these uh, Hadith written down mm -hmm. as claiming that these are the words of Muhammad. So um, the words of Muhammad that he said have great authority mm -hmm. in addition to uh, the Quran. Mm -hmm. And then this story, as you, as you mentioned it, the Sirah, the narratives about the origins of Islam have um, a great appeal and they, they set the whole understanding of the early years of Islam. And they have, in that sense, they have authority to provide the overall narrative structure of the mm -hmm. Quran. And so there's at least these three, and then we, we could talk about Islamic law, mm -hmm. but um, there, there's more than just the Quran yeah. when you're talking about uh, yeah. the primary sources. Yeah. And it goes back even to what we were saying earlier, worldview. If somebody's listening to this and they say, I really want to develop a more practical knowledge of what my Muslim friends would would how they derive truth and, and whatnot, is it's not just the Quran. Is it, and, and, and to a Muslim, they wouldn't look at that as uh as wrong you know to a to a christian they might say 
to most Protestant Christians, at least, they might say that it's the Bible alone. And, um, and so I think we have to, in understanding our, our Muslim friends, we need to sort of put our worldview aside for a second and understand they don't see any problem with it being from the, the fourth century or it being so many levels of source removed from the messenger of Islam and, and so on and so on. So even that understanding alone is going to help you in navigating some of these conversations, because sometimes we sometimes we're guilty of placing a level of expectation on another faith group that they themselves don't don't hold to like we would. We uh, Christians have a long history of textual analysis and in 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 placing heavy emphasis on. Uh, when I was in youth ministry, I used to call it the game of telephone. Uh, you know, is is hey, our sources are only seventy years removed from the events. Muslims don't. Muslims don't place as high of an emphasis on that. And I think that sometimes we, we place that emphasis on that for them, which is probably unfair, at least in, in, in at least not helpful in navigating our relationships and conversations um, with them. But, um, but before, before I let you go, I, I do have a, a couple questions that I want to engage with you on because I, I get asked them a lot. And when I get the opportunity to talk to someone like you, I'd say, well, I, it would be a crime for me not to ask at least a couple of these. And so um, <clears throat> the first is one that we've alluded to a couple times, which is one that I get quite a bit, which is, uh, like I said, part of your, your expertise, which is how as Christians should we navigate the accusation that comes both in the Quran and then just throughout the teachings of Islam in the last 1400 years that the Torah and the gospels, so the old and the new Testament were corrupted by the early custodians of the texts, as you say. Yeah. Um, Jeremy, that's a really huge ap- accusation yeah. from the Muslims to the Christians and Jews. And uh, it has the, the function of shutting down conversation. You mm-hmm. see, if, if I'm speaking from the Bible and said, Jesus said this, um, there's this, you know, this way of saying, well, but he didn't really say that because, you know, you can't trust your gospel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And so we, we need to deal with it. It's all, yeah. always up front there. So when I got a chance to do a PhD, I said, I'm going to... Uh, look in the earliest commentaries on the Quran and check what, how these early exegetes interpreted all the verses that have to do with this subject. Mm-hmm. And so I found some 25 that keep coming up in the literature in polemic and so on. And uh, looked at what uh, Muqatil Ibn Suleiman said in mm-hmm. now about 150 years after, the, uh, after when Muhammad was supposed to have lived. And so um, I thought this is important. Let's get to the bottom of it. Where's, where's this coming from? Right. And so this is, this is a huge one. So we have to take it seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we should let it shake us. It's, it, it does, you know, the, the missionaries that are in Muslim areas, when they hear this, these kinds of objections, you know, it's falsified, it's, it's corrupt. It's, as you said earlier, it's abrogated, it's canceled. I've had people say that you feel kind of bad. Well, really yeah. bad because you say, okay, what's next? Like yeah. that's, that's my, you know, that's my backbone. That yeah. This is what, this is the truth that I hold. Um, but the, the word of God has power. Even when people say it's from a corrupted book. I mean, we have to mm-hmm. remember that the power of the word of God is sort of independent of us or of uh, the listener. 
And mm-hmm. so we shouldn't, we shouldn't stop saying Jesus said this, or mm-hmm. uh, here's why Jesus came, or here's how much God loves you from the Bible. We should keep that up. But um, friends in India, whom, I, whom we'd made uh, friends, friends with in the early like 2000s and so on, uh, they said, Gordon, there's this book going around India that really hammers the Bible. Hmm. And it's, it's written in Urdu. People can easily read it. And it's very salty, kind of <laughs> insulting language. And it's really twanging it, you know, against our Bible and using higher criticism to do it. They say, help us out. Mm-hmm. They said, you know, I mean, what are you doing with your PhD? You know, <laughs> teaching in a seminary? Like, come on. <laughs> yeah. It was uh-huh. like that. Yeah. And so uh, after wondering how, it, how we could do it, Mm-hmm. After two years, uh, my wife and I said, let's do it. Mm-hmm. There was no guarantees, but God took care of us. And so I, I spent several years uh, writing an answer to that kind of polemic. Uh, and it's called the gentle answer to the mm-hmm. Muslim accusation of biblical falsification. And so this was in service of the church, especially um, that's living among Muslims and hearing this every day. Uh, and also it was a, uh, it, it, uh, it addresses Muslims directly mm-hmm. in a friendly yeah. and a gentle way, taking the truth concerns dead serious. Mm-hmm. So it's this combination um, that I think we want to strive for. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're not against Muslims. We, we love them and we want to live with them. Mm-hmm. And we want a conversation that's open and free. Mm-hmm. and uh within the w- within the context yeah of friendship yeah is this the is this the book I, th- I i had seen it referenced by i think james white i think he was he was uh begging you to debate uh the uh the author of that book in urdu i believe and 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 he was he was a big fan of yours it seemed because of that book he, he liked that one yeah he liked it but um, I'm not a debater. Like, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Like he is. Yeah. You know how it goes, Jeremy. We, we can do a few things maybe, yeah. but, uh, you got to have a really quick mind for debate. And you're very nice. You're, you're so <laughs> nice that I think you would have a hard time. Uh, I mean, you could do it. I, I think with somebody like the, the wealth of knowledge that you have, you could do it, but, uh, they, they probably wouldn't know what to make of you because that saltiness seems to be, uh, not, not found in your, in your polemic. Well, I, I might try to be nice, but my problem is I, I think of the answer like tomorrow, right? Uh-huh. It, it just yeah, take yeah. that long to, oh yeah, I should have said that. Yeah. So uh, yeah. that's uh, well, that's one of my limitations. Well, well, thank God for the book then. So, uh, well, well, I had I had a whole list of questions, but I'm going to ask you one more because I don't want to okay. take too much of your time, and I think this is uh, one of the more important ones, and it's one that uh, you know the aforementioned uh, Andy Bannister has uh, worked on, but I'd love to hear your thoughts as well, is this question that continually comes up, uh, specifically in the world that you and I live in, not so much the Muslim world, um, which is, do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? And and in uh, the Quran with Christian commentary, you devote maybe, I think, two pages to explain uh, the linguistic backgrounds of Allah and Elohim, and Yahweh and just the differences. And, um, but yet that question is going to continue to arise and it doesn't help that people, um, like Miroslav Wolf wrote, uh, he wrote somewhat recently, um, seemingly like in a 
pluralistic way, suggesting that there is commonality between Allah and Yahweh and, and so on. Andy Bannister wrote a book uh, addressing the question and saying, of course, no, we do not. But I'm just interested in, in maybe your, your answer to that question in, in maybe how you've addressed it, because I'm sure you get it 10 times as much as I do, um, which is, what is your opinion in regards to are Yahweh and Allah the same? Yeah, well, you're right. It comes up a lot. It's, it's really, Jeremy, a, a great opportunity for theological reflection and especially uh, Christological reflection. Um, if we take it from the Muslim side, I think you, you uh, hinted this. Most Muslims in the world would just say no right? Be- because of Jesus, mm-hmm. right? because they know we see Jesus as divine. Uh, so they would say no. It, it's the, it's sometimes the spokespeople for Islam in the West, in the United mm, States, yeah. who have a different way of answering it. And it, it doesn't represent the majority of people in Muslim majority societies. But um, what about from our, our side? Uh, you know, who is the God that we worship, right? What, what about God is precious to us? And um, I like uh, just changing the, the question slightly uh, because it, the question, do we worship the same God, has so many variables, uh, shifting variables, that it's very hard to get through. But I like to say, is the God revealed in Jesus, right, the yeah. same as the Allah of the Quran, mm. right? So that's more specific. And uh, in my book, then, I've, I've, uh, I keep asking this. And I say at the beginning, listen, we're not answering this question now. Read through how Allah is portrayed. Then tell me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? And so um, taking a few things. Is he the creator? Yes, he's the creator. Right. So this is something in common. But there's a hint in this that we're in trouble. Because the New Testament says that creation was was through was by was for mm-hmm. jesus and in in muslim teaching and the quran as well um isa is a created being created in the womb of mary mm-hmm. so it, it's a uh, so what about love uh is god love is allah love in the quran well there's no such statement and uh, most of the material about love is Allah loves those who do good. Mm-hmm. It's, it's uh, conditional. Yeah. And many verses that say Allah does not love those who do evil. Yeah. Um, there's no command in the Quran to love God or people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It never comes in the, in the imperative. So is this the same? Is this the same God? Like there's a series of things we could go through. Is, is he the savior? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, no. There's no. There's no uh, story like uh, the cross and resurrection of Jesus. There's no salvation from sin in those terms. Uh, you repent. You hope for the best on the day of judgment when you will be judged. Is Allah the Word made flesh? Right. <laughs> John chapter one. You read through those first eighteen verses. What does it say? It says that if you want to know what God looks like. Look at Jesus, the one and only. That's what it says. Yeah. So is that, <laughs> is that God the same as Allah? And mm. 
Muslims would say definitely not. Right. No word, no word made flesh. Mm-hmm. And they, yeah. they even say, uh, no, uh, he did not die on the cross. So mm-hmm. he's not the savior. He's a, they say Allah put, uh, put his appearance on somebody else who died. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, no salvation. So these are, you know, these are basic things. These are things of first importance, said, said mm-hmm. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. The, this is the center of our faith. And so the discussions that we have, the friendly discussions that we have, uh, are, are, very, are very important, are very deep. Uh, they go to the heart of things. Uh, mm-hmm. So this is why I think, yeah. you know, we need more and more people like you, like mm-hmm. others who will study this material out of love for Christ, out of love for Muslims. When you go deep into Islamic studies, do it for love of Muslims. Mm-hmm. So you can understand the um, worldview and um, give your message knowing the terms of reference. Wow. Yeah. And so, you know. yeah. Well, I, that's a very beautiful answer. Um, I think if somebody's listening and they, they're grappling with that or have grappled with that in the past, potentially even just that notion of reframing the question of is the God of the Quran, the same as the God of the Bible. And I believe we begin to see that, that it is not. Um, and it's likely, you know, as, as you and I both alluded to it, it's, it's likely more of the pleas of the well-intentioned Western inclusivist that ever even accepts the notion, it brings about the notion that they might be the same because we know that in the Muslim world, they usually would say uh, nothing of, of the sort, but, but um, you know, Dr. Nicol, I, I, I'm so encouraged by the way you do scholarship. I, I think that if we had more and more people, men and women like you, uh, we'd be, we'd be uh, in a much better place. And I do think that your work in books like this and in, in, in your other publications and your work through the South Asian Institute, um, and even what you're Lord willing going to continue to do um, is, is only going to better serve people like me. So, so thank you so much for that. And thank you for taking some time to have this conversation with me. I hope that maybe we can do it again in the future and have even more uh, dialogue about how best to, to reach people of other religions with the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jeremy. And it's been great to talk with you and you know, you're a pastor and I got respect for you. Uh, Your, your work is awesome. Well, I very much appreciate that. Thank you, sir.